0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets Podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and joining me this week is Laith Califf. Hello, Dan. So this week, we take a look at the latest results from UK banks and the big US tech firms. We also debate potential changes to the UK stock market's listing rules, designed to make the UK more appealing to companies looking to trade their shares publicly.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure everybody has noticed that the price of food keeps going up, so I'll be weighing up calls by the Liberal Democrats for a probe into whether some food companies are profiting too much from the cost of living crisis.
1: Now, Leith has got his best suit on ahead of the King's coronation, and we'll be talking about the economic impact this event will have on the UK. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, Union Jack, top hats on for that uh, particular segment. And uh, and even later in the show, Danny Houston is going to be talking to Tom Williams. He's the investment manager of Downing Renewables and Infrastructures Trust. Uh, and he pulls no punches about what the UK government needs to do if it's not going to fall behind in the race to dominate green technology. But first, let's catch up with what's been going on in the markets. Dan, can you give us a lowdown?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we've had the, the big sectors that have been reporting have been banks and tech companies. So if we take the banks first, there's kind of a mixed response with Barclays and HSBC, which seem to go down quite well. Uh, NatWest and Lloyds disappointed investors despite um, sort of saying that their, their earnings have been not bad. Uh, you know, if you just look at them, I think you know, they're clearly benefiting from higher interest rates. So there's a, a bigger gap between. The interest that's sort of charged on borrowing and paid out on deposits so that's called the net interest margin but there's been you know a sort of stagnant economy and you know the prospects of higher rates for longer does mean that bad debts are still you know a clear risk for the sector the other thing to keep an eye on is the outflow of deposits so that's been a big problem with some of the US banks as you know depositors are taking their money elsewhere to get a better return. In the UK, competition is certainly heating up for deposits. Um, you know, Lloyds was sort of flagging this in its results, saying it's seen a two point two billion pound outflow in the first quarter, and it's just down to competition. You know, it, it just means that people are looking for a better return on their money. Um, you know, when there's some quite decent rates to be had out there, it sort of makes you more willing to to sort of shop around. So, um, you know, that, that's clearly something weighing on the minds of banks, and of course. Uh, you know, what, what they need to do is you know, if they want to keep or, or, or grow their customer base, they're going to have to offer better rates. Um, and of course, that might eat into some of their earnings, um, that, you know, the sort of strength of which um, have been quite good recently. But how long that lasts is another matter. But on, on the sort of the tech side, lots of hype around artificial intelligence still. But what actually has been really interesting, if you look at um, Amazon, Alphabet and Microsoft results, is, is how cloud computing is it's still pretty strong. And I think, you know, lots of people are expecting growth to slow in that area, but all three reported double digit sales growth and positive operating income for the first time ever. Meta platforms beat expectations with its results. Um, you know, it's been touting progress with, with AI um, sort of, helping to drive its share price even further. And, and actually, those shares are up about 170% over the last six months. So um, I just think there's there's lots, anything, any companies that come out and mention artificial intelligence, AI, um, really capturing the attention of investors at the moment. You've got names like um, you know NVIDIA, and C3 AI, they're all involved in, in the AI space, both doing very well. But is this just a classic bubble? I think very few companies actually make a profit from AI at the moment. Um, And whilst there's definitely benefits to be seen down the line, it does feel like that there's sort of a bubble growing at the moment and investors just just lurching onto anything that's sort of deemed to be um, this latest sort of hot craze. And, And unfortunately, we know that these things never stay hot permanently. So, one of the big stories catching my eye is whether we've reached the point where the big food and drink companies need to stop pushing up their prices and exploiting consumers given that we've all got to eat, so we've all got to buy these products. So, you know, is there something important going on there? Well, yeah, I mean, if
2: we've had a number of sort of figures on this front out in the last in the last few weeks. I mean, probably the, the, um, the kind of starting bell was rung by the ONS, um, signalling that, um, you know, we had the fastest rise in food inflation in 45 years, coming in at 19.2% uh, in March. And, and along with that, you know, statistics that, that half of adults are actually buying less food. As a result, um, And that's actually been compounded now by the British, British Re- retail consortium uh, coming out with figures that showing that in April, food prices uh, went up by 15.7%. So a little bit of a moderation in the growth rate, but still a staggering amount for food costs um, to, to rise by. And that seems to have prompted the Liberal Democrats to, to weigh in on this particular issue what they're saying is they want a competition markets authority inquiry into whether the supermarkets and other big food companies are, are profiteering uh, from uh, the inflationary environment. And I think what's probably driving that is the fact that wholesale food prices, uh, so factory gate pr- uh, prices, seem to be falling, but prices aren't falling on the shelves um, as yet yeah, the, the British retail consortium again said that food prices, at, sorry, wholesale food production costs, uh, peaked in in October of 2022. And they say that there is a three to nine month lag um, between kind of wholesale prices and that being uh, reflected in, in store. And of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? But, you know, I think actually quite a lot of what they've Um, Said in terms of kind of why that is makes makes sense Uh, because you know if you think about you know what what the cost of the goods is on our shelves, wholesale prices are of course a part of that, but also you know supermarkets have um, energy and, and labor costs as well. You know they've got existing stock that needs to be sold. There's packaging that goes into it as well, and you know kind of you know big supermarkets are not kind of good buying you know baked bean tins by the, by the single unit they've got big contracts for big amounts and those need to kind of feed through so you know i think i think taking aim at the supermarkets is 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 maybe a bit difficult because actually you know in the uk we have a very competitive um supermarket sector um uh, probably largely uh, largely thanks to kind of Aldi and Lidl arriving in, on the scene um, around ten years ago, you've also got you know online comparison tools, lots of lots of price matching going on, and actually kind of over the last ten years or so, absent the last you know eighteen months or, 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 or give or take, then you know actually food food inflation has been relatively contained. And we've actually had periods of food inflation over 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 that time. So um, yeah, the Lib-, Lib Democrats obviously think that there's there's an issue with with kind of the supermarkets here. Um, I think you know it is perhaps a bit easy to kind of take take aim at companies that are making you know large profits when I say large profits I mean you know millions of pounds worth of profits because that sounds like a big number doesn't it but I think it's important to bear in mind that these are very big companies and they deal with all all their numbers are big you know the dividends they pay out are big the um the revenues that they make are big but also their costs are big as well so if you look at Tesco for instance they made 65 billion pounds worth of sales last financial year. That's, you know, that's a lot of money. But the actual cost of those goods to put on the sell- shelves was 61 billion pounds. So, you know, that's before you take away staff costs, uh, interest costs, tra- logistics costs, warehousing, rent, all of that stuff. So, um, you know, we're talk- th- this is just, you know, a- there's a law of big numbers thing going on, on here. Um, if you actually look, Dig down a bit into kind of what the, the profit margin, the operating margin that these companies are making. Tesco's profit margin, it, its operating margin, so kind of after all the costs have come out, is 2.3%. So that is basically means that on it on one each one pound of stuff that Tesco is selling, they're making 2.3 pence of, of profits. Uh, which, again, is probably largely down to a very competitive sector. So there doesn't seem to be some sort of huge conspiracy here on the face of it to rip off consumers. I mean, if you could compare this to someone like Apple, for instance, Apple's profit margin is 30 percent. Um, so so actually, the kind of supermarkets aren't aren't really making a huge amount of money. They've got their own kind of pressures on them on them as well. You know, and you just have to look at the share prices over the last 10 years, you know, Tesco. It's down to something like 40 percent, the share price over the last 10 years. Um, uh, Sainsbury's down around 25 percent. And so that, that again, that's not a signal of sort of, you know, companies that are making excessive, excessive products. So, you know, there's definitely an issue with food price inflation. You know, food and energy have really hit households hard in the UK. Those these are two things that you have to spend money on. Inflation has been rife. But it may be that, the, you know, taking taking aim at the um at the supermarkets isn't isn't really going to solve the problem
1: i think if you if you sort of maybe separate the supermarkets from
0: um
1: the sort of the, the, the food manufacturers you've got these sort of the big branded companies like unilever um so you know, nestle are they the ones that are you know they're making the big profits aren't they because they're they're sort of dictating what they can sell their products to the supermarket. But if you look at someone like Sainsbury's desperate to try and sell products as cheap as possible, um, you know, taking a hit on margins already. So maybe, maybe it's actual, you know, you have to go one, one step up the food chain into the, sort of, sort of the supply chain to find out who's really making the big bucks here. But, you know, I'm sure I don't need to tell everyone listening to this, that, you know, that these prices are still going up. I noticed you know a loaf of bread is now, you know, what over two quid in my Tesco order, and this is like, yeah, this is crazy, isn't it? We just think like that was a pound ago, really. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we don't we don't know when it's going to end, really,
2: do we? And a lot of this takes a while to feed through. I mean, there was one sort of bright bright spot in all of this that I saw the other day, which was that Tesco is cutting the price of of milk. Um, and I know that's only one item, Um, but it may just be a sign that there is some sort of light at the end of this particular. Inflationary tunnel, and um, you know, again, the kind of British retail consortium does say that you know it is expecting prices to moderate in the next few months, and I think hopefully, as we end, you know, get towards the end of this year, things will, will, um, you know, fingers crossed, be looking a bit better.
1: Well, there's certainly an event just about to happen that will get people shopping um, for you know party food. Food, you know, quiches and, and uh, prosecco, and that's the the king's coronation. So, um, but I guess the key question here is: is such an event good or bad for the economy? What do you think, though?
2: Yeah, well, I guess it has good, good and bad aspects, doesn't it? So, there are some sectors which will get a boost this weekend, undoubtedly. So, hospitality, leisure, things like pubs and pubs and restaurants um, will be expecting uh, to take in some 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 extra uh, money this weekend. Um, You know, but, you know, there are also, you know, a lot of people will be off work at the same time. So um, there will be there will be a bit of a negative for for economic activity um, as well. So, you know, given that we have three bank holidays in May, I I kind of suspect that that will have overall that will probably have a, a negative effect on on economic growth as a whole across that month. Um, we, we we will find this out in the not too distant future because the ONS um, will provide us with, with with data on on how GDP performed in in May, um, and I suspect that they will include some some commentary about the, the coronation because whenever we've had these events in the past, they have kind of singled them out and tried to kind of tease out some of the uh, the kind of positive and negative aspects of them. Um I think what you know kind of when we've seen these kind of events in the past, you do kind of you know get get a maybe a boost or or a bit of a drag in a particular month, but actually, you often get a kind of bounce back in the opposite direction the next month, and I think if you zoom out a little bit and rather than looking at one month, you look at a quarter or actually kind of a year, you know I don't think that you know the the kind of one weekend of spending is really going to make a huge difference to the kind of the direction of businesses um, it's not gonna you know make a, a huge impact on, on the kind of direction of the economy as a whole um, and you know there are much bigger things at play here you know kind of like in you know there's inflation there's interest rates business confidence you know government taxation and you know compared to those you know very large macroeconomic factors then i think um you need to uh, you need to kind of keep the keep it in context. I think compared to those that kind of the, the, the king's coronation is probably very, very small beer in a, in a in an economic context, because, you know, Dan, you're going to have to eat a lot of coronation quiches to offset the impact of rising <laughs> interest rates. That's that's just a fact. Um, so so, yeah, so let, we'll, we'll see when I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the ONS says. Um, when when they bring out um, uh, their data on this, but I, I, I don't think that it's going to kind of you know move the dials of the UK economy uh, significantly. But let's move on from uh, all things coronation, um, and um, yeah, let's let's look more at the kind of the, the listings regime. So this this is kind of. Um, uh, Something that's kind of hot off the press, really. The FCA is is looking at um, is looking at kind of rejigging the, the UK listings regime in an attempt to kind of lure more companies onto the UK stock market. You've been looking at this, Dan. What what are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, you can see why they're doing it. I mean, since two thousand eight, we've seen UK listings reduced by about forty percent. Um, Recently, companies have been going or certainly talked talking about wanting to go to the US, and they do, would do that to get a higher valuation. Um, but really, you have to think you know, UK is has been out of favour for a long time. So we have this problem where, you know, ever since the sort of the, the, the EU referendum vote, in, international investors have sort of gone off the market a bit. They're, they're sort of worried about what the impact of Brexit. Um, Uncertain uncertainties around sort of the the, the, the sort of political regime as well, uh, and you know I know that we're seeing some takeovers recently from companies realizing that um, there's some bargains to be had. You can snap up UK listed companies cheaply. Um, I still feel that there's lots of people who don't really like the territory. And so, if imagine if you were a, a business now thinking where do I want to list, which stock market, um, you know, it's kind of a hard sell for the, the UK. You know, there's some you know. Companies have been on this market for for, for decades, and they're you know, well established businesses, and, and they sort of they love the UK because um, you know the UK market's got a good reputation. Sort of, it's like a badge of honor to be to be listed there. But um, the sort of the, the the next generation of companies coming through, um, you know, perhaps they're thinking, well, unless we're we're a particularly British business, um, and that's what all our shareholders will be, is this really where we want to be? So. The FCA is sort of saying, okay, well, maybe we want to sort of re- reduce the amount of regulation on it. Let's let's try and sort of remove some of these stumbling blocks that have stopped some companies listing in the past. So um one of the things it wants to do is just at the moment, you either have a, a standard or a premium listing category. It says, well, let's just have one of those, let's make it a lot easier. Um and that that sort of you know that might speed up the the time at which it takes to actually complete these sort of the, the paperwork to do a listing as well. But there's to me, I just think that there's loads of negatives. There's there's more cons there are pros for this one. And I think you know, a key thing here is you're removing some shareholder protection. So you know, th- these proposals say that you you kind of no longer have to get uh, votes from all shareholders if there's a related party transaction. So um there's also you know, going to be a removal for a requirement for listed companies making acquisitions bigger than twenty five percent of their own market value to put the deal to shareholders and you know and another one is you know, currently you need three years of audited accounts, so the proposals say you know this won 't happen to be so you can just imagine you you 've got a company that's unproven doesn't have a track record. Um, you know, this is sort of, you know, an investor needs to make an informed decision. So it really does need to see a good three years of, of accounts. And so now, you, you know, there is this risk, you get some dodgy businesses come on, you know, and, and if we get dodgy businesses, that could sour the reputation of the whole market and, and actually it's doing more bad than good because of you know, relaxed regulations. And there's some other stuff around um, making it easier for company founders to keep control of their businesses via, via sort of special voting rights. So um, yeah, th- 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 one of my colleagues here said, you know, that it sort of was, was thinking about what was it really mean? And they were saying it's a bit like being a bouncer at a nightclub. Um, you know, London markets traditionally had a bit of, sort of a, a strict address code uh, when it comes to listing rules. Um but now these proposals are kind of like asking club goers if they 're willing to let the trainer wearing ruffians in in order to keep the sort of party going and 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 that 's kind of what it is it's it's it 's making things um you know, easier for um questionable businesses to come in and list and and really that 's not going to improve the reputation of the market and i and i, I don 't think it's the right thing and there 's lots of people who share this view that. Um, relaxing the rules is definitely not the way to go. What do you? I mean, what's your sort of view, Lath on this?
2: Well, I've I've definitely been on the wrong end of that. Um... Trainer wearing roughing dynamic at the, at, the night, at the nightclub door. I can tell you that much. It's not. It's not much fun. So, um, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely bang on. I mean, I guess there's there's you know the kind of it, it felt to me like this was really aimed. A lot of it was aimed at kind of tech companies. You know, this stuff about kind of founders um, being able to retain control, which kind of probably a lot of sort of startup tech companies would, would want to do. And this is kind of I think against the backdrop of ARM Technologies, which used to be a UK company, has a very um, big um, operations. Here. Here, which uh, was taken over by 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 SoftBank, a Japanese conglomerate, and is now uh, relisting and has chosen um, the US to relist in rather than uh, the UK. So this is the kind of backdrop um, to 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 this um, uh, to this kind of regulation. Uh, but I, I kind of just wonder if there's you know this this kind of regulation is it's it, there's not just a regulatory issue here. I don't think. Um, I think, you know, you know, a company like Arm would probably want to, to list in the United States because it could probably get a better valuation over there. You know, in terms of the kind of depth of their markets, they're just much bigger. There are more people who are going to be willing to bid um, for that company. Um, you know, if you think about kind of the, the kind of global stock market, two thirds of it is in, is in the U.S., and four percent of it is in the UK. So you know there's just a huge amount more willingness to invest in in the US. Um, you know if you're if you're a global um, money manager, then you will be benchmarked to the to the MSCI World Index, and if two thirds of that is in the US, then you're probably going to have a large portion of your of your fund in the US. Otherwise, you're going to be taking a lot of risk, and perhaps that kind of you know perhaps passive investing encroaching on things and the kind of the the the, the greater relevance of benchmarks nowadays, I think means that actually that puts the US in in a, in a pole position really because so much of the stock market um, is is already there, and even here in the UK we've seen UK investors pulling money out of UK funds for years now and investing them in global and US funds. And, you know, partly I think that's to do with performance. Partly it's the kind of companies you get over there. Partly there's, you know, their, their economy has been, you know, performing better than ours. And I also think that maybe there is a sort of slightly critical mass issue. Now, if you're kind of armed technologies, you can and list on the UK, the UK stock market and you look around and who else is there? Well, you've got Shell, you've got BP, you've got HSBC. You're not really seeing companies uh, are similar to you. Whereas if you go to the US, you look about, you've got your Apples, your Amazons, uh, your Teslas, your Alphabets. So there's already kind of a critical mass there. And I just wonder if, you know, the, the regulation, I think, you know, they're, they're having a go. Uh, and, you know, definitely there is a watering down of investor rights here. But I just wonder if there are also bigger issues at play as well.
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially um, it's one, and of course, these are only proposals. Um, who knows what could happen next? But you know, I'm, I'm sure if this takes another turn, um, or, or some new developments, we'll, we'll, we'll bring up again on the podcast in a future episode. Now we know investors have a crucial part to play in decarbonisation if countries like the UK are going to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement but with oil and gas prices still at relatively high levels, has some of the momentum for change been lost? But Danny Houston has been talking to Tom Williams, investment manager of Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust, who has some pretty strong words about what the UK government needs to do to boost investment and hit climate targets. Let's hear what they had to say.
0: Tom, renewables is a really interesting field. We all hear the arguments about climate change, the commitments, but... Investing in renewables has kind of fallen a bit out of favour in recent months. We've had the oil price soaring. We've had costs spiking. Um, some investors and developers worrying that they won't get a decent return on investments in big projects like offshore winds. What's your thinking on this?
3: Yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting time. I think the what, what is happening on a... Macroeconomic level uh, across uh, Europe, which is the you know where where we are uh, mainly investing, particularly Northern Europe, uh, is that the dynamics are undeniably um, toward more investment in renewables, not less, and that's uh, policy. So um, every uh, uh, government in each one of our target jurisdictions, both sides of the aisle, uh, are firmly behind. Uh, Net zero commitments 2030, 2035, 2050, whatever they might be. Um, And the only way to get that is to decarbonize, is to electrify. And so, what that means is um, more electricity demand. uh, And in the absence of more generation, uh, that will drive prices up. And on the other hand, um, you are looking to have um, clean energy generation. Now, you're also looking at the kind of macroeconomic situation that you have uh, caused by the invasion of Ukraine. We are trying uh, very quickly to remove Russian gas and hopefully Russian oil from the European energy system as much as possible. The only way to do that in the short term is through renewables. There's no practical way of reforming the way in which we bring gas into Europe uh, in the near term to be able to solve that that issue. So I think... Um, short and medium term, the fundamental drivers for more renewables is undeniable. And so the question is just how we get there, how long it takes, and um, how we get over some of the market dislocation that we have at present.
0: Because there is a huge lot of market dislocation at present, and you are trading at a discount at the moment, which will make it difficult for you.
3: It it certainly will. Uh, And I think, uh, amongst other things, uh, what happened in Q4 last year uh, with uh, some of the actions of the the government hasn't helped. Uh, And that is taking some time to work through. It's taking some time to restore investor confidence. And it's taking some time for people to work out um, whether the kind of returns that are on offer in the broader renewable sector. I think um, we have about 15 billion or so sterling on on the London Stock Exchange available in listed renewable stocks. And um, the vast majority of those stocks are trading at a discount at the moment for the first time in a very long time. Uh, And that is because people are just wondering, well, what is an appropriate term? What is an appropriate yield? Uh, And what they're doing is they're looking at what they can get elsewhere, particularly in um, the government bond markets. And they're thinking, well, what kind of a premium over those do I want uh, to be investing in these kinds of things? And it's very difficult for people at the moment to work that out.
0: Long term, the clock is clearly ticking. And as you say, there will have to be more investment in renewables. We've heard a lot of words from the uk government but they don't seem to have gone far enough to reassure investors and developers and they certainly don't seem to have gone far enough to combat the pressures of the um inflation uh reduction act in the united states and the response from europe
3: yes uh, look and we were would- talking about this before we came on air, right? I I sort of feel like the UK government has done so many things well. A a real pioneer in offshore wind, um, a real pioneer in grid reform, although there's a long way to go there. Uh, And a lot of that is being copied uh, by uh, different uh, governments, different countries all all over the world. Um, The the problem is it's a bit like uh, it's, it's a bit like cricket or football. You know, we, we can um, uh, we can we, we can inv- be involved in, in in creating the game, but unfortunately, people play it a lot better than us uh, uh, after a little while, and, and and that is sort of what's happening. So um, we had the Skidmore review that came out at the start of the year. That was a real clarion call to the government to unified policy. Um, it was pointing out that. Um, we were in danger of losing our place in, in what uh, has been described as the industrial revolution of our time. And um, I, I think I agree with them. Uh, and unfortunately, we just need uh, to do what we know we need to. The government, different government departments, are all saying uh, the right things. It's the unification of that policy into a coherent strategy that, that is missing at the moment.
0: We were world leaders. Do you think that we can get that back? I'm thinking particularly of, obviously, um, offshore wind. Um, you were talking earlier about batteries. Can we get back to that place, or is it too late?
3: I don't think it's too late at all. And and I think um, these things can be um, blown out of proportion. Right? So there is, if, if we take a step back, there is still a real a Huge investable universe out there for us, both in the UK and outside of the UK. So, I think that from an investor perspective, um, the opportunity set keeps growing, and it keeps growing inside the UK, uh, and it keeps growing outside of the UK. And and of course, if you if you take our strategy for example, we're, we're looking at both the UK and Europe. So, I think the first thing to to, to make clear is that um is that that still remains for us a really, really attractive sector to invest in and I think um, will be for many years. I think what's disappointing about the UK is that they may not keep pace with uh, some of the bolder, more joined up action of um, the US, for example, Inflation Reduction Act, um, Europe in terms of their response to that and some of the initiatives that they're talking about and also individual governments which are um you know quite quite progressive so i, I think it's really just sitting here you know as, as someone who um is english you know <laughs> and and really wants to be uh, to for the uk to do as well as it possibly could do and and really take advantage of these opportunities it's just a real shame that they're not quite grasping the opportunity in the way that they really could.
0: So as you say, there is opportunity. Clearly, you focus not just on the UK, but on diversification, looking further afield into Europe. How does that make you different and and how does that help with stable returns?
3: Yeah, look, that's a really excellent question. So I think when we we, uh, brought the fund to market, when we IPO'd, We talked about diversification for for really good reasons, because if you diversify by technology, the technologies are in a renewables fund are all reliant on the natural resources available to you, basically the weather. And if you are uh, in one single location, in one single technology, you are reliant on one single um, type of weather. So solar, the sun, for example, if you diversify by geography, you're access different weather patterns, different technologies, you can diversify. Now, thinking about our discussion over the last few minutes, it's also a very good idea to diversify by geography because you are exposed then to different policies, different governments, and um, those governments might have uh, more progressive, more advanced ideas, create more opportunities. Um, You can also, when you diversify by geography, have exposure to different energy markets, different supply demand dynamics, different pricing. And so what you do by stitching together all of these different uh, constituents is that you have a more diversified portfolio of assets that don't show strong correlation to one another in terms of generation or revenue. And what you have, therefore, is a more stable set of cash flows. And that stable set of cash flows, uh, we hope, reduces risk for the same return, increases stability. and, And that's what our investors are looking for.
0: We've spoken a lot about solar and wind, but one key differentiator when it comes to the fund is the exposure to hydropower. Just explain a little bit about those investments and why it's important.
3: We really like hydro for a number of reasons. And, and we, we have about uh, 30 or so small hydropower plants uh, in Sweden at the moment, and in our in, in the fund. <clears throat> and the reason we like hydropower is because amongst the renewable energy technologies, it's one of the only ones where you can control when they produce. So if you remember, I was talking about being at the mercy of of the weather. So when it's sunny, your solar panels produce energy. When it's windy, your wind farms produce energy. And um, they can't control that. <clears throat> With hydropower, what you can do is you can store water in reservoirs. And those reservoirs <laughs> oh sorry uh, can <clears throat> can control when the hydropower plants produce. If you do that, you can choose Uh, higher power power price periods to produce uh, or you can uh, uh, you can stop producing or reduce your production when the power prices are lower and in doing so you can optimize your revenues and uh, increasingly with more and more solar on the system more and more wind on the system um, when it's very sunny and very windy they tend to have an impact on power prices and they tend to lower and so the, the the benefit of having all this storage is that you can shift that around and you can you can avoid producing in those in those kind of periods where where prices are lower as a result and that's extremely uh, powerful for us and um, the other reason we like them is because they are uh, very very long life assets so solar and wind par- uh, farms and parks they have a limited lifespan. 30, 40 years, perhaps. And the average age of some of the hydropower plants we have are closer to 80. uh, And we think they'll last for another 80 years plus. So um, they're just a very fundamentally different type of asset for us uh, with lots and lots of really interesting benefits.
0: Although you're talking about assets with sort of long lifespans, one thing about this sector is that technologically it's advancing incredibly quickly, just briefly. Um, what are you most excited about coming up?
3: Well, I think there's a, a number of things, actually. I, I'd say two main areas of excitement. One is I think there's a new um, types of revenue that are opening up as a result of technological advancement and so for example uh, in um, sweden we're looking at participating in the frequency response markets uh, for our hydropower assets which is an entirely new uh, type of revenue that we didn't originally anticipate being able to to participate in or being able to capture uh, when we made our original investment so you know that's very exciting it's obviously very valuable it will increase the value of that portfolio uh, so, so new markets uh, opening up, and there are some interesting markets in the UK uh, around providing reactive power, which um, w- which is where you're trying to keep voltage and current in in sync uh, on on the on the grid. So, um, yeah, entirely new types of revenue streams, new markets. I think in terms of uh, the types of asset, I think batteries is also really interesting for us. Uh, there. Uh, are lots of opportunities in the UK, in Northern Europe to deploy batteries, some co-located with our existing assets, and some as standalone batteries. Uh, and those are uh, you know, now a pretty well-established uh, set of assets with well-understood revenue streams. And uh, there are lots and lots of opportunities there as well. So I think those will be our, our two areas where I think we're probably uh, really excited at the moment.
0: Tom, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Yeah, and thanks again for for having me on. It's It's been a pleasure. That's all we have time for this week.
2: Don't miss next week's podcast. We'll be talking about some of the technological advancements we've seen in the retail sector. We'll catch you then.
0: Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not.